Hello. Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. On this show, we'll talk about the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of individual mental illness and a psychedelic view of suffering and change, and we'll explore many of the possibilities, opportunities, and pitfalls that emerge from this union. In addition, we'll keep it weird and talk about some of the aspects of psychedelic experiencing that make it so interesting, fun, and transformative. All right, welcome back to Altered States of Context. Today, we'll be presenting our first interview on the show. Brian and I will be talking with Dr. Jason Luoma, a researcher, entrepreneur, clinical psychologist, and psychotherapy trainer in Portland, Oregon, where he founded Portland Psychotherapy. Dr. Loma recently has gotten involved in psychedelic research, and today we're going to talk about, do a little bit of an overview of some of the issues in psychedelic research and where some of the, the research literature stands today. Uh, he'll give us kind of an overview into the territory, and we're really excited to present this conversation. Welcome to the Altered States of Context podcast. I'm Nate, here with my co-host, Brian. Hi, Nate. Hi, Brian. Today, we'll be interviewing Jason Luoma, CEO of Portland Psychotherapy and research scientist and all-around great guy. Hi, Jason. Hey there. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming. Really appreciate having you on here to be able to talk about some of the research happening uh, with psychedelic medicine at the moment. To dive right in, I guess I'd like to hear, first of all, just your background as a as a research psychologist, just, you know, even, you know, not necessarily specific psychedelics, just sort of a little bit about your background and how you came to be on this path. Sure. Yeah, I've been doing research for, I guess it's about 25 years now, and most of my research has related to topics like uh, shame, internalized stigma, self-criticism. And then trying to develop interventions for that that are kind of more on the kind of acceptance and compassion based and like acceptance and commitment therapy. And the way that I got into research on psychedelics was that a core piece of helping people with this kind of deep sense of shame and the kind of sense of separation that comes with that and being kind of disconnected that comes with being stuck in shame. Uh, a core part of like helping with that is helping people to feel more interconnected with others, with the universe, with, you know, it's their, to, to kind of overcome or transcend that sense of the deep sense of isolation or disconnection. That's part of shame. And I think for anybody who knows something about psychedelics, they know, you know, that one of the things that psychedelics can do, you know, if they're used in the right doses and in the right, with the right set and setting is they can create profound experiences of transcendence experiences where your ego is kind of reduced your sense of your normal sense of self and your self story isn't so strong and kind of breaks down and you kind of feel one with the universe or, or it might be more interpersonal, I think like in the case of MDMA is more likely to, it seems 
foster a sense of interconnection with others. So it's not so much that breaking down the ego, but this kind of, I am, I am a human with others and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply connected with other people. And so that's kind of how I got into the area. I, I learned about that phenomena that was an important part of, you know, when psychedelics can be healing and uh, thought, oh, that's a really interesting thing to like have an actual way to induce that experimentally because it's hard it's hard you know we don't have those experiences so easily in our lives a lot of times especially if you're really shame prone um and so you have this kind of ability to actually induce those in profound experiences of connection and and interconnection so that's kind of how i got how i got into this area my from what you just said uh from from knowing you previously my impression is that you unlike i think a lot of people who become interested in the psychedelic space sort of like get there because they really connected with psychedelics and then we're following the psychedelic experience. Right. And it, my impression is that you sort of came from, like you said, researching into shame and self-stigma and things like that and kind of discovered happened upon the data uh, about this and the, and, you know, and, and, and sort of the discussion around psychedelics and we're drawn to it kind of from that path. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. I saw the, the initial outcome data that was looking quite good you know, small studies, still early days, but looking really good in terms of those those initial studies. And then there was that really interesting data about mystical experiences. And when you kind of dig into, you know, what that means to say you had a mystical experience, the kind of defining feature as it usually defined is a sense of unity with the universe um, or a sense of oneness with all. And so, you know, that, that, it's kind of couched in the language of mysticism or mystical experience, uh, you know, frequently inside psychedelics. But to me, the kind of the core part of that that I'm interested in is that sense of interconnection or that kind of sense of oneness or, you know, being part of something bigger than just you. So, yeah. And so I, I read that and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, I, I mean, I've also also been interested in mysticism. Like, how, you know, what does that mean to have a mystical experience? You know, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. So like, you know, from a, the lens of a non-religious person, like how, what is that? Cause I, cause I've always felt that mystical experience is a profoundly important part of the human experience. And as someone who's not religious, like, what does that mean? Um, but I, I don't reject that as an important part of experience just because I'm not religious. So I thought that was just a very fascinating scientific issue in addition to like a personal thing to try to understand what, what all that means. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, mystical experiences are so hard to define and so hard to describe. I'm curious, how, how the heck do you study something like mystical experiences? How do you approach that from a scientific standpoint? Well, you could speak to that just as much as me, but I guess I'm the guest on the show, so I'll, I'll answer. <laughs> Feel free to pitch in there, Brian. Um, so... The way that it is typically been measured primarily is there is a self-report scale. And basically it asks a bunch of questions like, did you have a sense of oneness with the universe? You know, and a variety of questions that basically ask whether people had the kinds of experiences that are kind of typical of what people would call a mystical, a mystical experience. And if they have enough of them, then they're kind of it's you know, 
basically says you had a mystical experience. It's called, the main scale that's used is called the mystical experiences questionnaire. And that's the main one, you know, and then there's, there's the neuroimaging stuff, but it, it doesn't directly measure mystical experience in any way. It's just looking at say like something that happened, you know, some part of the brain lights up or not in the images. And does that, is that correlated with the self-report, but it's really the, it's really the self-report that is the, is the key thing. It's a, it's a phenomenological experience. It's not a, um, that makes it the mystical experience. You know, the brain experiences is not the mystical experience. It might lead to it in some sense, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, the mystical experience is specifically the person's subjective experience of that state. Right, exactly. Is that is that questionnaire, is that the same one they used in the, the Good Friday experiment? Do you know? I can't remember. I mean, it wouldn't have been the MEQ. It, have been, it could have been the, the original version of that the MEQ was taken from. Or it could have been the hood mysticism questionnaire. Do you, do you remember, Brian? The hood mysticism questionnaire is like a questionnaire about lifetime experiences of mystical experience. And then there was a, a longer version that the MEQ came from. I can't remember the name of the scale. And that one might have been used in the, in the Good Friday experiment. Which that experiment, of course, was the first, like that was a, you know, produced data indicating the, the centrality of the mystical experience uh, in, in the psychedelic experience. I think, I don't think of it like that was what that particular experiment was targeting. And I guess for our listeners, um, would you like to give a summary of that? Or I can say a few words. Yeah, go ahead. I, if I have something to add, I can. Yeah. I think it was, they, they randomized was, I, I think it was 24 people, you know, 12 in each group. And uh, I think it was a high dose of niacin they gave, which, you know, kind of unleashed a problem that you see in almost all psychedelic research, which is double blinding is kind of hard because <laughs> you know pretty quick who took the active agent and who didn't. Um, but they were set in a church, in, you know, in, in an explicitly sort of religious context, you know, and essentially what, what happened is, uh, I mean, to put it, a very short version is the, I, I don't remember what number, but a very high percentage of the people who had taken the high dose psilocybin had a mystical experience as measured by, again, we're, we're not sure which questionnaire it was. Um, and the group that didn't, who was in the same setting at the same time, did not have uh, mystical experiences. Exactly. And then I think that was one of the studies that uh, Rick Talman followed up on later. So there's some kind yes. of 30 year follow up data on that as well. We, we want to spend a lot of time kind of talking about our, our current phase of research that we're in in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, but first, wanted to just ask you, Jason, you know, psychedelics have been studied for a long time in the, in the 60s and early 70s. And there was a lot of studies. I mean, there was one estimate of over of a thousand papers written on the subject. Just for our, our audience, like what would you say were the main takeaways of that body of research, or what what did we what did we learn from all of all of the that research that we did? Well, that's a big question. I think um, maybe speaking to the limitations of the research first, mm -hmm. the quality of the research in that period, what, there were really good parts of it, but the clinical intervention research at the time was definitely a lot more flawed than today. So I think any of data from that period needs to be 
kind of held more lightly and it, we need to be more cautious about what it really means. But the things that come to mind for me off the top of my head are things like, you know, it showed the the safety of LSD particular um, when used in a clinical setting with appropriate support that it's uh, quite safe. It showed also that if you don't provide the appropriate setting, so there were a number of researchers who, uh, or if you don't provide the appropriate setting, then it can be, it's likely not going to be helpful at all or potentially harmful. There were a number of researchers who at the time didn't really understand the importance of set and setting, it seems like, um, or potentially it's possible they were intentionally negative towards psychedelics perhaps, but probably more likely that, you know, they didn't really understand it. And so they would do things like give the person LSD and then just have them sit in a barren room, barren room with no window all by themselves for eight hours and with no preparation and no support. And, you know, anybody who knows this area would know that's, it's not likely to go well. <laughs> and yet, you know, the idea, the thought was like, this is like other drugs and that, you know, if you just give someone antidepressant, it doesn't matter the set setting, you know, it's part of how we normally think about those things. And so same thing here. And so then you had bad outcomes. So I think that's one of the things that empirically we learned, you really need to pay attention to the set and setting and that psychedelics are kind of nothing without the set and setting. They just, they don't, it's kind of meaningless to talk about them really without thinking about the, the context in which they're taken because they're so profoundly dependent. Their effects are so profoundly dependent upon the context. So I think we learned that. And then there was, you know, some good pilot data on promising effects for a variety of problems, alcohol, problems with alcohol in particular mm-hmm. is my sense. And then there was also some research around, I think, end of life and of existential concerns and things like that at the time. I'm not as familiar with what other, what were the best studies outside that. And then there's, you know, there's all just the data around things like, you know, showing definitively that psychedelics can lead to these mystical experiences and that this is, you know, part of what the substance does and when in the right context. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like it's sort of a, it, it's a strange because, you know, in 19, basically 72, it's like almost like doors closed, done, finished, no, no more research. And so you had this, this body of work that was frozen in time for 20 some odd years. And then I think there was a tendency to, to look at that research and, and, and know a lot of its limitations, which are true, which were the limitations of all research at the time. And it just didn't have the opportunity to develop as methods improved. It was just frozen there. So it's pretty neat that that's thawing again and can kind of be brought up to speed because like you were saying, it does seem that there was a lot of promising stuff there that was just all of a sudden like, never mind, nothing to see here. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very strange in the history of science, like a, like if such a thorough uh, censorship program. Yeah. It's interesting. I, w- I wonder what other examples there would be like that. I, I can't think of another one, but I, I imagine it's happened, but probably pretty, pretty darn rare. Yeah. Especially if you consider the, um, how 
within the research community, but also, of course, in the culture, just how prominent they were. So it was this it is the extremely prominent, uh, extremely interesting thing that many people were studying and even and it seemed like you know, research was intensifying, increasing and then just <laughs> gone. Yeah. And a, th- a thousand papers, you know, back then people did not present or publish as nearly as many papers. It would be interesting to know the data about, you know, what number of papers are produced every year in 2021 or 2020 compared to the number of, you know, papers in like psychology and psychiatry that were produced every year in 1968. And my guess is it's at least 10 times as many. So, you know, it's probably 20 or 30 times as many. And so if, if, if you were to extrapolate that today, you know, it might be like, if you're trying to consider how prominent this was or how much research was being done, if the, you know, if that thousand estimates true, I haven't really looked into the, the actual like primary source data on that, but I know that's a, been quoted that maybe a thousand papers, you know, you're talking 10, 20, 30,000 papers. I mean, that is a, if that was today, like that would be a prominent research area if it had that many papers over a 15 year period, you know, it's, it's it would be popular. And the fact like that, that it, that's like a inflation adjusted, inflation adjusted exactly. papers. Yeah. <laughs> and that it was just really completely left out of, you know, psychology textbooks or medical school training. You know, so many people that um, hear that I'm involved in psychedelics are very surprised. They've never heard of it as a, as an area of study. And it's just like a whole area of history that we, we overlook. So we're in this psychedelic renaissance now. Um, this is a term that is kind of being used. It seems more commonly to describe this recent surge in studies that are being conducted. I don't know what you would say, Jason, maybe the last 10, 15 years. I'm, I'm curious, yep. you know, a question I get a lot, which I have trouble answering, is probably because there's not a clear answer. It'll take years to write the history of this, but but why why has the climate changed? Why is there this this now openness to researching psychedelics when the door was shut for so long? It's a really good question. I'm you know I'm sure you have as many ideas on that as I do. From what I've seen, uh, you know, I, I guess I would just say in terms of con- context here, I'm relatively new to this area, so I've been reading a lot and have tried to understand you know the history as much as I've been able to given the time I've had, but. There are people who know a heck of a lot more. So if I make a mistake here, somebody email me, let me know. But I guess the way that I've thought about it is there have there were a number of researchers and advocates like Rick Doblin, who, you know, basically dedicated is dedicated his career to conducting research in order to get psychedelics legalized as a medical treatment. Um, and there's a number of you know him and a, a lot of other researchers who essentially tried to run studies as passion projects, you know, poorly funded, largely donated their time, and just thought there was something potentially important here, and um, just did it. And through those slow accumulation of of data, um, eventually were able to kind of grind the FDA down to, you know, get, get enough safety data, enough 
initial efficacy data to actually get to be allowed to do studies eventually, work through the regulatory process. You know, I think Rick Dobbin was, as far as I can tell, incredibly key to actually learning how to get through the FDA because I think his PhD was in, I forget what it is, something about regulation. Uh, does it, you remember? Public policy of some Public sort. Public policy think, and yeah. regulation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he basically has been studying the FDA and how to get through that for his whole career. And so kind of just figuring out that, how to get through that um, set of uh, entrapments and, you know, regulations and the, and the politics, you know, it's getting enough distance from the 1980s and the, the most severe intensity of the war on drugs um, and the stigma of drugs, at least being somewhat reduced with cannabis legalization, continuing to, have, I think, help with reducing the stigma of many uh, controlled substances. And I think that that coming together with the FDA, you know, kind of allows the FDA to loosen up a little bit. And then all of those studies, again, preliminary, but interesting studies and good initial data starting to accumulate by excellent researchers, really high quality researchers. And I think, you know, those, those, all, come, those all come together um, over time, and um, and then eventually, you know, the media picks it up. You know, it starts to see the starts to see this uh, stuff building, and you get you get popular books um, that we all know about um, that that you know increase it, and and now you have you know, now you just have this the ca- capitalism has got into it. Now it's like people starting to see their opportunity to make a lot of money potentially, and. And that's, you know, creating a gold rush. And now you're really seeing a lot of money come in, which is, you know, there's a lot of downsides to it, but it also means that there's some research funding. Seems like an intensely mixed bag. I don't know if uh, either of you have a good history of this, uh, specifically around kind of the FDA thawing towards this and the DEA is uh, Tom Schroeder's acid test. I don't know if either of you have read that, but that's sort of a, a good, I think a pretty good history of that for you know listeners who might be interested in a little more detail on that. It kind of, Doblin's featured prominently and, and, um, and just the sort of, there's a real focus on, on the early research and, you know, how that came to get over the DEA hurdle, which was essentially it's a schedule one drug. No, you can't do this. <laughs> yeah. There's also a really great podcast on the maps podcast that where Rick Doblin's interviewed and he basically just talks for an hour and a half about his career. He just details it from the very beginning to end. And he talks about all these like FDA meetings he goes to and what happens in the meetings. And so I think it's a personal angle on it, but it also kind of captures that kind of shift in the FDA over time and how they developed relationships. And just as a little anecdote on that, I'm going through the FDA process right now on a on our clinical trial and I've never been involved in the FDA. I never imagined myself being involved with the FDA, but now I am. And one of the things that's been very interesting on there is the person that we're working with was, um, I was just surprised how informal the kind of interactions were. Like we're just, you know, we're emailing, they're using first names and it just was kind of a surprising experience to me of the sort of informal kind of personal nature of it. So I can, I can kind of get how, you know, the FDA isn't just a bunch of like st- stiff bureaucrats, you know, and 
pure, it's not purely about just these regulations that you have to follow, but there's actually like an interpersonal component where I can imagine actually probably pays to be friends with people and be nice to the people that they and like have, have, you know, connections. And then, you know, of course, then the industry is like inserting people into the FDA, right. Who people were worked at this pharma company. Now they're inside the FDA. I could sort of see how there is a relational component that is part of working with the FDA and how over time maps and Rick Doblin and some of the other researchers developed positive relationships with the FDA by being reasonable in how they go, not demonizing the FDA, realizing, you know, that the FDA is, it's an important institution and that it has an important function and that the people there are not insane monsters. You know, they're, they're just like people trying to do their jobs for the most part. And, you know, kind of, I could see how that would take, would could potentially take time as well to, to do that. So I imagine that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendous accomplishment to, to rehabilitate sort of, you know, the, the reputation that these drugs had throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. And it's quite an accomplishment to get over that hump to, to study them again in a, in a productive way, not just doing studies about here, we're going to study it to see how it makes your brain smaller, which it's always been easy to right, find right. that kind of work. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm kind of curious to shift back uh, a little bit to the beginning. You talked about your personal interest in shame and stigma. I wonder if you could talk about a few of the studies maybe you came across or the, or the way this sort of entered into your awareness and how you kind of began to put those pieces together. Like, wow, this seems specifically to do something that seems to me to be very important. So I wonder if you could give a little more detail on that. I'm trying to remember particular studies. I mean, I can remember particular studies, but I don't remember which were the first ones I read. I think the most influential studies were primarily the studies out of Johns Hopkins. And there were some other ones as well, but those ones were very well run as far as I could tell. And the main thing that they showed was that even with these small samples, there was a a strong correlation between having a mystical experience during the dosing sessions and good outcomes. So there were different kind of problems that people were dealing with, but end of life concerns in some of them. There's also the studies um, by Stephen or Stephen Ross's study from NYU that was one of the largest ones. Again, kind of showing that, I believe that he showed that in that study as well. There was some uh, an earlier study or smaller study with, again, end of life or kind of life-threatening illness that with Charles Grobe. I'm blanking on all the different, there's so many people who did great some of these great studies. But that basic, you saw that across several studies where you had this even with small samples, a pretty strong correlation between the mystical experience and, and you know, life improvement. And I was, uh, I was impressed that it was there so reliably and that this, the effect was as large as it was to see it in small samples. And I, I just thought if people are, if this is a real legitimate research, you know, that's, these are pretty good results. They're replicating across multiple studies and and one of the concerns that I had when I first thought about getting started in this was I was worried that, worried is maybe the wrong word, uh, skeptical and concerned that 
the researchers might be kind of like true believers who weren't were kind of stacking the deck for psychedelics in the way they did their studies. And because I didn't know anybody, I didn't you know, know any of the researchers. I did, you know, I just read the studies and it's, it's hard to tell from the outside. It's a small group of people. And like, you know, are these all just like rah, 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 you know, psychedelics are great for whatever reason, maybe personal experience, who knows? And, you know, where they, and it's not, it's very easy in, in, in research to either unintentionally or intentionally to stack the deck so that, you know, the, the studies will tend to go in the direction that you hope if you have a, a bias towards something. And so I was just kind of, that was what I started to see the data and I was like, this is pretty damn good data for where we are, you know, scarily impressive uh, pilot data here, but who are these people? And so one of the things that I did was I had the good fortune to be able to attend a, a retreat where a bunch of those scientists were there. Um, and I got to hang out with just a, like there were maybe 15, 20 people there. And I got to hang out with a bunch of those scientists for a couple of days and just chat with them and ask them questions and just sort of see how they talked about psychedelic science and science in general. And by the end of it, I was, I was convinced that, that that didn't happen, that these were not true believers where, you know, I mean, they may be true believers in a sense, you know, they may be supportive, I don't know, but they, they clearly were very intentional and committed scientists, like scientists first. And, and, you know, as evidenced by the fact that every single one of them, this was a side project. You know, that their life was science on something else that was 95% of their career and that the psychedelic work was 5% of their career. So and this wasn't their main area of work anyways. They, they were just really good scientists and they were doing this on the side because they thought, oh, there's something that might be important here. And so it was that combination of the data and then meeting a number of them and kind of feeling like, okay, these are these are not these are not biased researchers, at least not more than any other. We all bring some biases in. So like those are, for me, those are the two, I think key kind of the mystical experience association with the outcome and the, and the meeting the researchers. And that were the two kind of key events that convinced me that there was enough signal here to, to jump in and be, and, and see for myself if I could generate any data and, trying to help out investigating this topic. That's one, one thing I've been, you know, really impressed with and, and have great respect for the researchers who, who you're talking about, Jason, who've, you know, really seemingly course corrected some of the earlier mistakes that were made in terms of the research by being so cautious, by when you hear, you know, when you hear a lot of these principal investigators of studies talk, they, you know, very often will just very stick to the data, you know, be very kind of cautious in their interpretation because of wanting to do this right and, and do this in a very rigorous, rigorous manner. So a question I, I have for you, Jason, you know, psychedelics 
can be very inflated and deflated. People can talk about them in grandiose ways or the cure for everything. And people can talk about them in very stigmatizing ways. But given, given where we are in terms of the, especially the recent research, what are some of the claims that can be made about psychedelics that stick closely to the data? Like if a client asks me, you know, how do psychedelics work or how are they beneficial? Um, I know it's kind of a, a big question to ask, but just what are some of the things that that would stay true to the data about what we know at this stage? It's a good question. It's, I mean, in terms of outcomes, I think you have to be conservative. I think you have to say there is promising initial data that psychedelics are helpful for the best and the best data is for anxiety and depression associated with life-threatening illness. So if someone has, you know, cancer and might be dying, that's probably where the best data is. There's some data around smoking cessation, some around alcohol, but not, not that much. It's pretty limited, limited so far. It's hopeful, but very preliminary, some data on depression, again, small studies, but there's some early good data, PTSD clearly with, if you're talking about going outside classic psychedelics, there's quite a bit, you know, that's where the best data is overall is with PTSD and MDMA, that, and then the life, the life-threatening illness, probably pretty similar in a lot of ways. So that would say that in terms of the outcomes, it's got to be pretty conservative. I think we don't really know that well yet. In terms of how it works and from an, from an empirical standpoint, and not that much we can say. <laughs> we can say things like it affects the default mode network, um, which is this kind of network inside the brain that has to do with kind of consciousness and self-reflection and autobiography that it, it disrupts that exactly how it disrupts it. There are different studies that seem to be indicating different things, but it clearly affects that, that network of the brain. And, and we know that that is, that network relates to your sense of self relates to your kind of the stories you tell about yourself. You would use the word ego, your kind of your self-concept or your ego. And so all of that together suggests that, you know, psychedelics empirically have some effect on your sense of self. It disrupts it, changes it, alters it, perhaps reduces it, at least temporarily during the experience. And I think we have good neurological, you know, neurobiological data to, to suggest that. And then out, outside that, in terms of data, there is that data about mystical experience. So, you know, if you're in a good set and setting and you have a mystical experience, um, you have that sense of unity, that sense of oneness, the things that tend to go without also often feelings of, you know, positive feelings, bliss and gratitude and awe. Um, if you have that, then, you know, you're probably going to find a lot of benefit. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and we also know empirically that that happens quite quickly if you, or quite often, if you have the right set and setting that a lot of people experience that. And I, I would say probably outside of that, most of the other things you could say empirically are pretty limited, you know, based on a study or pretty poorly controlled studies or not very high quality studies. Outside that, I think you're starting to move in the realm of speculation and then theory and clinical experience and, you know, personal experience. And 
those are all good, you know, good things to talk about and can be relevant, but I'm not sure that there's a lot you could say about how psychedelics work from an empirical standpoint outside that there, there may be, um, maybe some other biological things that I'm not thinking about at the top of my head. I mean, we can say things like how it affects, you know, serotonin and all that, but it's hard to know how that relates to improvements. Do you have any other ideas yourself? I would just add to that, that, um, in these studies, we haven't seen uh, a lot of adverse events, you know, what, what's commonly called bad trips. Um, yes, these experiences can be challenging, very often are challenging. On the other side of that challenge is usually some therapeutic benefit, as you're saying, with the right set or setting. But we're not seeing the real kinds of traumatic experiences that can happen um, when someone takes psychedelics in an uncontrolled setting. One of the, the challenges I see that I'm interested in your perspective on as, you know, particularly someone who did your research in completely different areas and sort of drawn into this one. It seems like part of what you're describing too is like, well, we know some things, um, but we don't, there's not like a really coherent story yet that really, because it seems like it's sort of starting in this very new space. You know, it's not building on sort of any real current model like it's it's a real stretch for the field of psychology in general for the field of psychology and psychiatry and so it's like a lot of it's like starting almost strikes me as starting from the ground up with a with a research program does that fit your sense in some way i tell there's a lot of truth to that i mean there are i think er, lots of areas of psychology neuroscience other fields that could be pulled on and are pulled on you know in terms of informing what's being done and what's being researched, but um, in terms of the actual data that's been produced and then actually published, it's about how psychedelics work. It's, it's quite limited. I, I think there's been so much of a focus on because, because of the involvement of the FDA and the, and the FDA really focusing on efficacy, on looking at whether something works, not how it works. Like the FDA doesn't care at all about how something works. Like FDA has no relevance to the FDA. It just is about showing that whether something works compared to a control condition of some sort. And so I think that, and just wanting to show that it does something has meant that most of the studies really just look at, does this help? And very little looks at how it helps. And then you have all these, you know, these brain scan studies and things like that. But part of the problem with those is they don't have, they don't have the therapy context. Almost all of those studies don't have the social context of administration as part of them. And, and we know that that's profoundly important in terms of like how the, the drugs affect us, not just, not just at a like experiential level, but you would imagine that that would also have to be part of how the brain's kind of functioning in, in the context as well. Um, but they haven't really, they haven't really studied that too much. You know, most of the brain scans are like, you just kind of dose the person and you put them in a brain scanner. And it's often not at a high level. It's not at the dose levels that you see in the trials. It's often at lower doses. So it's also another question, like uh, how similar is that? But there's, yeah, there's just, there's just, there's just uh, so much to discover here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Yeah. That question of how it works or sorry, how it, or rather than outcome, you know, just kind of rather like how it, 
what happens, how it achieves that outcome is to me a far more, far more interesting question. What gets talked about is the neuroscience, but most of the neuroscience doesn't include the social context. So just to give you an example of how important that is, there was a, a study published in 2019 in Nature. I'm blanking on the author's name. If one of you remember the name of the first author, but it was a it was a study in in Nature. So you know, one of the couple most prominent journals in the world, and it was a, a study of MDMA. And they were looking at it in, I think it was in mice. It was in, definitely in rodents. I think it was in mice. And they wanted to look at, one, was there a period in development of mice where mice were more sensitive to social reinforcement? In other words, they had more of a preference for like hanging out with other mice. And was that something that happened during a distinctive period and then you know would go away? And what they found basically was they did, this is one of those papers that has like dozens and dozens and dozens of studies in one paper. And they did all these studies and they basically found that young, young mice up through adolescence had a preference for hanging out with other mice by doing these kind of, they had this setup where they would like put a mouse in, in this box that had two wings and the mouse would learn which one had another mouse in it. And then they would like put him in there and there'd be no mouse and they would see where the mouse would go. And they would, you know, the young mice would go to the wing that like they had experiences with other mice in it and the older mice would be like dropped in and they'd be like, eh, you know, I could go take them or leave them, you know? And so you had this kind of evidence that when mice got older, they stopped having this preference for like essentially meeting new mice or kind of hanging out with new mice. And so then what they did is they wanted to look at does MDMA kind of through its effects reinstantiate that preference and of what they were thinking about is kind of reopening that critical period, that critical period of learning where people are reinforced by social contingencies in this way. So what they did is they took mice and they had all these different conditions. And one of the conditions was, you know, they gave the mice the MDMA either with another mouse or while they were alone. And then they looked to see, did the mice have this preference again for social interaction? And what they found was that the mice who got MDMA when they were alone had no, they did not have any increased preference. And it was the same as mice who didn't have MDMA at all. And then it was only when the mice got MDMA and were hanging out with another mouse during the dosing um, experience, that only when the the MDMA occurred when hanging out with another mouse that then for, I think it was up to two weeks after the dose, they, they, this kind of preference that you tended to see in adolescence, this preference for social interaction reappeared. And what it says is in this finding and so many other findings seem to say is that even with other mammals, non-humans, you know, without all this stuff about like dissolutionary ego or whatever, that, the social context of psychedelics is profoundly important. And then if you're studying what it is and you're not studying the social context, you're not studying it or you're, you're kind of, you're, you're mixing apples and oranges because they're, they're totally different. It seems like this, these neuroscience studies where they actually don't even specify or they don't kind of talk about the, 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 the set and setting and act as if the brain's going to do what it does regardless of the sense settings. It's just not true. 
the brain is going to do something different in the two contexts. And so that's a real gap from my, in my opinion, that's a real gap in even the neuroscience research that's been done. Well, this is, this is where I want to ask you about, you know, I kind of want to take the opportunity to ask a little bit about uh, contextual behavioral science specifically, because, you know, it seems to me that there is a pretty natural fit. The mantra of set and setting, set and setting is context, 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 which is, you know, it's in the name contextual behavioral science. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of attention paid to that, you know, so it seems like an area in which there could be sort of a natural synergy and and sort of uh, building a system that isn't necessarily from the ground up. You know, I could imagine a research program that, 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 that isn't starting from zero as far as assumptions that can really build on sort of an existing view of therapeutic change. And I wonder if you could talk a little more specifically about how you think contextual behavioral science and maybe a particular technology or, or just more generally and, and what you think that can offer uh, to psychedelic science. It's a good question. There's a lot of pieces to it. And uh, you might reference the paper that we wrote on this, the whole paper, Brian's one of the authors on that. You might put down the show notes for anybody who's interested. But there, there are a lot of pieces to that. I think at a really basic level, part answers in the name, it's contextual behavioral science. And so CBS really at its core pays attention to the role of context in determining what behavior is. And in this case, we're talking about behavior includes everything that we do, including thinking and feeling and all of that stuff that kind of happens inside as well. And so in that way, it matches really well with psychedelics because psychedelics are so dependent on context. And so to have a model that really you know, centers the role of context versus is, is really well-matched versus many models, many scientific models these days are very non-contextual, very much essentialist kind of models, you know, that behavior is found in the brain and they're very reductionistic and they don't really pay attention to the context of what we do, what we think, what we feel. And so in that way, I think philosophically, it's really well matched and directs our attention to to context, which is if we're talking about therapists in particular, which as I imagine a lot of people are listening to this, you know, what we want is to know what we can do as therapists to help people. And for, we can't research new psychedelic compounds. You know, we can't like reach into people's brains and do surgery on them. Like what we can do is say this thing or do this thing and then it'll either help, you know, or not. And so CBS is really focused on, you know, the therapeutic component of it. What do you do in the therapy? What do you do in the preparation for the initial session? What might you do in during the dosing sessions to maximize the effect and reduce the possible downsides? What can you do in the integration sessions to hang on to prolong expand gains? And I think uh, that's what CBS talks about. And um, I can talk about ACT and things like that, but I don't know if I should go on at this point. Any responses to that already? Well, 
I think one of the things that, you know, when you, you, you mentioned act, you know, an act sort of refers to itself often as an experiential type of therapy. So that is learning from experience. And, you know, to me, that seems like a particularly good fit with psychedelic experience, which is unexperienced. So I wonder, you know, what aspects of the psychedelic experience would you imagine sort of being particularly congruent with how ACT conceptualizes like experiential therapy working? Sure. Yeah. And you, you definitely got my science hat on. You got my science brain going and I'm being very like nerdy science speak here. So I will try to, I will try to maybe shift out of that a little bit into a little more kind of therapy speak. So, you know, ACT is often thought of in terms of the psychological flexibility model and that is broken down into six processes. And each of these processes seems to map on and describe an aspect of common psychedelic experiences. So one of the most, you can see it in the name, one of the most prominent parts of ACT is acceptance. And it's common in the you know healing use of psychedelics that people have profound experiences of, of self-acceptance that they develop a sense that they can embrace themselves and have all the space in the world that they need to be able to feel what they feel and not have to be caught up in so much of a struggle with it. And that is a commonly described experience that comes out of the, the research on psychedelics. There's, there's, there's the process of contact with the present moment. And many people describe this kind of uh, strong sense of being very much aware of your sensory experience and very much in the moment and not so much caught up in your normal dialogue that we often spend a lot of time in. And uh, that's a common part of the psychedelic experience as well as that kind of more of a clear, less kind of cognitively mediated sense of, of the world. There's the idea of cognitive diffusion or this sense of being able to step back from your thoughts and take an observer perspective and not be so caught up. And many people have an experience experiences of like that of that in psychedelics where they can observe their own thinking and oftentimes it may come away with insights because of it because they see their thinking more clearly than they normally are able to see it and they, and thereby actually kind of have new insights about how they tick about how they work and then there's this process of self as process or self, self as con context um perspective taking self and that has that seems to map onto this sense of this uh, ego dissolution or this kind of sense of interconnection with others, where your sense of self expands to include others in the universe, and that that really maps on well um, as well. And then on the then there's the values and the committed action part, and many people, again, when they have these beneficial effects of psychedelics, they they'll often report reconnecting with deeply held values, a more solid sense of being motivated by and, and in contact with what's really essential in life and uh, often more relational values that you know, might reconnect with how important people are to them and being loving in their relationships, things like that, or maybe even connection with nature or um, other values that may not have been as central in the past. And then oftentimes people find it easier to take action on those when they have that, that sense of clarity about really matters. So I think all of the, all of those processes were 
ideas that are already part of ACT and what ACT tries to foster. Uh, ACT tries to foster all those on its own already, minus the, the psychedelics. And so there's that potential nice synergy where you have psychedelics that could boost that, especially in a very potentially profound and very strong way for a brief period of time. And then ACT already knows something about like, well, how do we, how do we strengthen this stuff? How do we support this stuff? How do we and keep it going and, you know, instigated and all that. There's that possibility of having the psychedelic experience with the profundity of it. And then the ACT to come in and kind of more in the everyday mundane, mundane part of life, continue, try to carry it forward. Uh, and I think in that way, there's a, there's a possibility of synergy and there are a number of trials that are in planning or underway right now that are using act as one of the main guides to structure the way that the psychotherapeutic support is being done. And so uh, we'll, we'll start to see some data about how that combination of psychedelics and act seems to work empirically. Yeah, it is fascinating how how much growth there can be around the therapy portions of psychedelic-assisted therapy. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and, and just acknowledge that we are three white men here talking today, and uh, this is a very openly discussed problem of the, the research, the field of psychedelic research, in that there's a lack of representation of people of color. So, Jason, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that's being addressed in the research community, you know, what values are showing up uh, around this, um, what, what, what have you heard of being done or being talked about to address this inequality? That's a good question or a good topic. It's, it's certainly an important topic and something that I think to also acknowledge is just is not unique to psychedelics. This is part of psychology and psychiatry and any human studying science uh, that they tend to study these relatively wealthy, often white samples. And so it's endemic and it's part of the system of, of science in the Northern hemisphere. And, and so it's a huge problem and it's part of psychedelics like it is everywhere else or psychedelic science, like it is in the rest of science. So and something that really needs a lot of work. What is being done? You know, it's, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I'm the best person to to talk about that. Maybe you could comment on things you've heard of as well. I do know, for example, that Maps is has a number of initiatives that are trying to increase the diversity of their samples, including at one point having a one of their trial sites that was specifically for kind of contextualized and the care and the recruitment and everything be being appropriate for an African-American uh, sample of participants. There are, there are certain areas of studying psychedelics that are much more diverse, like the research on ayahuasca, for example, is way, way, way more diverse uh, than the research on psilocybin, for example, and the, the samples and the protocols and um, you got this kind of big split there really between ayahuasca researchers and many of the other uh, researchers. So that, you know, it's a kind of a place where there's something to be learned. There are groups that are trying to support researchers that are more diverse, 
like the Source Research Foundation, which is a little kind of new research foundation that's trying to impart support budding researchers who are have a broader representation. I'm trying to think of uh, trying to think of other areas. I, I mean, there's lots of people who care about it and are trying, but there's just so so much to do. Uh, it's, and systematically, the systems are so out of whack. Mm-hmm. Some of that starts so far back to a certain extent, you know, far back in the in the curve of you know how people get to the point where they are capable of running research and things. You know, like getting people into grad school and even getting people in the college and like supporting them through grad school and college and giving them the resources to be successful. And it's some of that is, is that, but it's, it's a tricky problem. I know what else, what have you, what have you heard of? What am I, what can you think of that I'm not thinking about? Well, I, I for, for me, just what stands out is just this overall kind of sense that this is an issue and that this does get talked about a lot and that, and, and a lot of psychedelic researchers really care about this. And, you know, a lot of modern psychiatry and mental health is embedded in systems of oppression, which historically has had less access to marginalized communities. And so it feels to me like there's at least an effort and dedicated time and money being spent to try to get this right. Or maybe let's not let, let's not repeat those those same mistakes that left people out this time around, especially given the fact that some of these medicines don't belong to white people and that we've they've right. come from cultural traditions that that aren't our own. Uh, so I, I hear it being talked a lot about. It probably can't be talked about enough. So that that's encouraging for me, at least. Agreed. And and there's still way more that that needs to happen. Um, and it's it's complex. And difficult. Very. You know, a question kind of uh, more in the research vein that I kind of wanted to ask you about why we had you here was, you know, obviously I referenced the double blinding issue before, right? That seems like a real, like, it just doesn't really happen. The blind is done quickly. And it's also true that, you know, psychedelic users have extraordinarily uh, strange, weird, bizarre experiences that are reliably strange, weird, and bizarre. And it seems a little problematic in a number of ways to try to deal with experiences that are so surreal or extra real, or, you know, the, the, the user is so convinced it is real. Are they real? you know, that whole idea of what is real and what is not enters into the experience often. So I'm wondering, you know, when you're looking at this as a researcher and you're like, what problems does this present uh, in trying to determine in trying, you know, in in trying to research and study this stuff with human subjects? Asking such easy questions here. Just like all of these, (laughs) just like summarize all the research from the 60s and uh solve the ontology problem <laughs> solve, yeah, solve the issue of, of, of ontology and philosophy um yeah, but I, know, I, know, I know how to i know how to what's the origin of the true origin of things the true nature of things um <laughs> i know the answer uh, i am not a guru so um i will not try to answer that but 
I mean, th- those are tricky questions, you know, and there are scientists who are trying to deal with it, questions like that. And, you know, what is consciousness and all that and uh, areas that are, you know, things that are sometimes more in the realm of philosophy than they maybe are in the realm of science sometimes. Um, but I think there are, there are scientific methods that you can use to study mm-hmm. that, those phenomena and you don't need to, you don't actually need to get into ontology. You don't, you actually don't need to have any position on whether the phenomena experienced under psychedelics are quote unquote real or not. They are real to that person and you can study them scientifically without having a position on it. You don't have to have a position on it to study it, you know, whether there are machine elves or whether there are actually entities, you know, visiting people or whether there, there are plants that are conscious and, you know, um, giving us directions in our lives. Like you don't have to have a position on whether those things are real to study them um, and try to understand them, at least from a contextual behavioral science standpoint. I think some scientific scientific traditions would would argue otherwise, but I don't. I'm not of that elk. I, I I'm not. I I think you can study these things scientifically without needing to assert whether they're real or not, um, and just sort of accept them as they are and something that's a phenomena and something that you can look at how to uh, influence it, um, what it predicts. You know, if this happens you know, in what context does that suggest good things are happening or bad things are happening? You know, you you can look at, you know, if that happens, if you experience this or that experience aliens visiting you, then, you know, what you can examine, like, you know, what should somebody do if they do this, then what tends to happen? And if they, if the therapist does this, then what tends to happen? And, um, you can study all those. Those are all scientific questions that you can analyze without, needing to really get into does mystical experience say something about the fundamental nature of the universe or not? Personally, I don't have I'm, I'm, on that as a scientist. I, I'm, it's not even an interesting mm-hmm. question to me. Mm-hmm. So. I'm imagining like an example of like a, you know, somebody who did a treatment and might, might have a story. I don't have a particular example in mind. I'm making this up, but like might have, have a story of like, you know, having experience of like they're, someone deceased mother maybe you know like they just convinced that they heard them speak to them and tell them that you know everything was going to be okay or like but they felt very reassured by that and they were actually really convinced that yeah that that happened sure that happened but then maybe and that's you could study that you could still you could show like wow yeah, there was a real um, shift in acceptance, of course, after that experience. So that person, whatever that was, and that belief sure helped that person practice acceptance a lot. Whether whether or not she had a, a visit from you know beyond the the grave is sort of irrelevant. Yeah, I think it can be, and I guess to me, it's a kind of a question of uh, there are lots of questions you can ask. And, you know, mind, human minds are capable of asking an infinite number of questions. And there will always be more questions than there are answers in the universe because you can always generate more. 
And every time you have another question answer, there can be another question. And so to me, it's more uh, about like which questions are the ones you want to try to answer. And certain ones are probably more useful than others, you know, and certain ones are, if you try to answer them, they'll probably, they might lead you down good directions for you. They might lead you in directions that are helpful for others and other questions will lead you down paths that are unhealthy or hurt other people. And so maybe some questions, you know, the answer isn't important or the answer, get, trying to get the answer isn't actually even helpful. And, and that might totally vary even by people. I mean, give me just personal example of that. Just as uh, when I was in my twenties, I went through this period where I was very existential in my thinking. I was so much, I spent so much time, you know, thinking about like, is there any meaning to life? What is the meaning to life? Does this matter what I'm doing? You know, and having thoughts like, you know, eventually everything's going to like get burnt up in the sun. And, you know, even if it's not that like the world, the universe is either going to like expand to where it becomes just all just cold and entropy and there's nothing happening or the universe is going to crunch back together and get so hot that all meaning, you know, everything, all order is destroyed. And it's like, what's the point of anything? And I, I got caught up in this kind of question about the meaning of life. Like, what does this matter? And that question, many people get caught up in that. And I really wanted the answer. And I felt like I, you know, I went on my own kind of spiritual quests of, of sorts and even pilgrimages to, to Asia and things, I think in, in some level as a way to try to answer that question of like, what is the meaning of life or at least the meaning of my life? And I, I got, I really spent a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, there was a day and I can picture where I was. I still cannot find the book, the exact book that I was reading. I think it was a Charlotte Joko Beck book, but I, I have not been able to find the quote. And it's this Zen author who's talking about, they, they said something about, I, there was a period of my time where I was really caught up in these existential questions. I was trying to figure out the meaning of life. And I realized it was making me really depressed. And I read that line and I, and I, and I, and I resonated with that line. I realized that trying to answer that question was making me really depressed. And in that moment, I just gave up on that question. I was just like, I don't need to, I'm just like, I was like, I'm not gonna try to answer that anymore. It's not working. And in that moment, I was just like, I don't need to answer that question. And I've never engaged that question again in any sort of lasting way of like, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of my life? You know, I have meaning in my life, you know, but there's certain questions that I think don't need to be answered or don't matter, you know, or at least they don't matter. They don't work to try to answer them. And I think that's kind of relevant in that scientific, there's certain questions that are scientific questions and there are certain questions that aren't scientific questions. And, you know, that's fine. There's a diversity, lots of ways out there. So, Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a great story. And, you know, it strikes me too, that ultimately, you know, it was like to tie that specifically to, to the discussion on psychedelics and, you know, it's like, there's a scientific question, 
what you're, what you're kind of talking about, like do these lead in useful ways, practical, useful ways, right? Basically. And then this more esoteric question. And, and, and to me, ultimately that's, that points towards, towards mysticism is, is where that points, right? Like towards a completely different domain of knowing, right? It's a different yeah. type of knowing that you can, but you can drive yourself like really into a bad place trying to know something with a certain way of knowing that isn't apt for that particular sort of domain of knowledge, whether that makes sense, like trying to know with this kind of thinky part of your brain, these sort of mystical questions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. Totally agree. And then psychedelics kind of come in and it seems like they hold the potential to give someone a taste of that, right? A taste, that kind of relief of, of, of that sort of knowing that they can't quite get, that maybe they can't get to by just thinking about it. Absolutely. Yep. And that, and that's part of ACT as some of those same ideas about how do we help people to access ways of knowing and maybe you could think of it even as wisdom that they have or that is uh, not necessarily logical or kind of through this more kind of direct problem solving sort of way of going about life and psychedelics can sometimes open that up for people uh, it seems like as well so. well we want to thank you jason for being with us today and uh, sharing your experience and your perspective we really appreciate your time you're welcome yeah it was fun to talk